Last week I made mention of how we are so richly blessed in this congregation with those who are able to uh, bring the word. And I am thankful not only for, for Camper, but we are so rich in this season of life because there's Ben and Rob and Ken and Jay and uh, we have one other, uh, Jason Hill, who hasn't been able to preach here yet because Ken's made him preach over at the base. Uh, for, uh, and so he's somebody who's part of our congregation who's preaching the gospel at Fort Eustis on a regular basis. And, um, and, uh, and now this morning we have another privilege. As Matthew Capone comes, Matthew has uh, started an internship with us while he's continued to teach at, at uh, Providence Classical School. And uh, this is Matthew's first opportunity to preach. He's taught, he's prayed, and has done a great job with one of our deacons. And I am so blessed uh, to have, been, have the opportunity to meet with him and, and encourage him as he does this. And I am also, without trying to make him uncomfortable, well, not worried too much about whether I make him uncomfortable, I was in, I've just been in, in, incredibly impressed. And I am delighted to be able, and I'm sure in years ahead, to be able to say uh, that I was able to be sitting under Matthew's teaching the first time that he preached. And we all have that privilege this morning. And so I want to pray for Matthew before he comes up, just, uh, just to, uh, he would be at ease. And for us, primarily my prayer will be that the Lord would help Matthew to feel your love for him as he speaks and shares to us. So let's go to him in prayer. Father, we do thank you for how you have blessed us and even added to the richness already by bringing Matthew to us and, and allowing Matthew to speak to us this morning. As he comes to speak, I pray that you would give him comfort that comes from you directly, that he would understand, even perhaps in a new way, of your great love as he feels the love of your people who are gathered here today, that as he speaks, he would be empowered by your spirit, encouraged by your people, and that as your word is proclaimed, we would uh, feel your voice speaking. And Matthew would feel the joy of sharing what you have him to say. Lord, this is my prayer. I pray that this would be that of all who are gathered. And I pray that it's honoring to you. We offer the name of Christ who is the word incarnated. Amen. Matthew. Thank you, Dennis, for that uh kind introduction. I am so grateful to be here with you all this morning, and so many of you have come up to me and told me that you've been praying for me and encouraged me. Some of you have offered me bribes to say certain things while I'm up here, and, you know, unnecessary but appreciated. So I'm grateful for the chance to be here. Um, and I will simply say that it takes a tremendous amount of humility for a pastor like Dennis to give up his pulpit for someone like me. And so I simply want to encourage you not to forget what a blessing it is to have humble leaders, whether it's Dennis or Camper or our session. And I'd also like to welcome you here. It's an honor to have everyone together in worship, especially those of you who have showed up just to hear me. I'm, I'm so grateful and I'm honored. And my trust is that whether you've been here uh, for years or whether this is your first time, this is a place where you can bring your questions and your joys and your doubts and your faith, a place for you to come and be welcomed. Our, our belief is that there's no one so good that they don't need God's grace and no one so bad that they can't have it. And for that reason, I'm just grateful that you all are here. Um, this summer, we've been in the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms is simply a book of 150 different prayers that God has given to his people as a model for how they should speak to him. And the church now has used it for thousands of years as a prayer book and a hymn book and a guide for worship. And so we come this morning and we join all those years of history as we study the Psalms. It's also one of the, the favorite 
of the books in Scripture and perhaps one of the most famous because it's so intensely personal and so intensely intimate. And it's intensely personal and it's intensely intimate because it's so intensely honest. The psalmist never tries to domesticate or sugarcoat the hard realities, uh, the overwhelming joys of life in this world. He brings his whole self before God. And so his joys are our joys. His doubts are our doubts. His fears are our fears. His love, our love. His anger, our anger. His disappointments, our disappointments. His hopes, our hopes. His faith, uh, our faith. And so we've been coming back again and again this summer. This morning we find ourselves in Psalm 139, which is one of the most famous and beloved psalms and one of the most famous and beloved books of the Bible. And for you to really understand Psalm 139, you have to understand that this morning I took a little run down the Colonial Parkway to calm my nerves, and you can't have lived uh, very long in Williamsburg and not had some experience with the parkway. It's 23 miles. It runs all the way from Jamestown down to Yorktown. It's not necessarily the most convenient way to go, but it's perhaps one of the most scenic, most quiet, most beautiful paths that you could take in Williamsburg. But if you're anything like me, there are certain sections that you frequent and that you love. So, for example, I go from Jamestown to Williamsburg. I really don't go from Williamsburg all the way down to Yorktown. And there are certain pullouts and overlooks that you might frequent. But there are other sections that you don't find yourself in perhaps very often or perhaps ever. And there may even be places that are uncomfortable. I think of College Creek, which has had a push recently to be shut down because of the number of deaths that have, that have occurred there recently. And as we come... I simply want to say this, that Psalm 139 is a lot like the Colonial Parkway. There are places that we're very familiar with and that we love. There are places that we don't look at at all, and there are places that are perhaps uncomfortable and frightening for us. And so as we come this morning, we're going to drive the whole psalm. We're going to go from beginning to end, and we're going to discover that this is not a psalm primarily about God's creative ability, although it speaks about that. It's not about God's knowledge, although it speaks about that. It's not about God's presence although it speaks about that as well, but it's about a God who comes and clearly and pointedly shows us our need for his grace and then meets us at that very same point of need. Uh, If you're here this morning and you're not someone who's sure about Christianity or about Christ, this would be a great place to begin to ask some questions. What sort of God is it that we worship? What does he do? How does he operate? If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Psalm 139. It's on page 521 in your pew Bible, and in my Bible as well. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Would you pray with me as we come to this portion of God's word this morning? Dear Father in heaven, we come and pause uh, for a moment from the distractions that surround us. Father, it's hard sometimes to focus on you with emails and text messages, with demands and schedules, with responsibilities, with the weight of our own uh, desires, Father, our own hopes, our own expectations. And so we come, Father, and simply ask that as you uh, have invited us here, we also invite you. We ask that you would come and you would seek us out, that you'd come and you would speak to us in ways that we can understand. Father, some of us come here numb from years of hearing sermons. Our, the soil of our souls is hard-packed, and we ask that you would come and you would till that up, that you would speak a word to us that we can hear. Father, as we have ears that would be receptive to you. Father, some of us are um, not so numb, but we come anxious unsure of whether this is really the right place for us to be. Father, we're filled with uh, places where we have shame, and we wonder if you would actually want to have anything to do with us. Father, we ask that you would come and you would speak clearly to us as well. Father, we ask that you would come and you would do what you always do with your word, that you would unstop our ears that we could hear, you'd open our eyes that we could see, that you would give us hearts, that we could believe all that is written about you. So come, we ask that you would speak to us before we listen. We ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. On May 2nd, uh, 2011, a little bit after midnight, a very small, uh, selective team of Navy SEALs stormed a very large, mysterious, high-security compound in the outskirts of Abbottabad, Pakistan. And if you... Um, probably already know what I'm talking about as I mentioned those words. It's just two years ago. It's still fresh in our memories, and the movie uh, just came out in December. But if you don't read the news, if you've forgotten, essentially, after training in secrecy for months, this small team of Navy SEALs, in a matter of just 40 minutes, ended a decade-long search for arguably the world's most wanted man. In other words, they found and killed Osama bin Laden. And what fascinates and captivates me about this story is not the efficiency of the Navy SEALs. It's not their intense training. It's not the super secret helicopters that they used to evade detection as they entered Pakistan. But what's most fascinating for me is the story of how the world's most wanted man evaded the world's most sophisticated and powerful government for almost 10 years. And you could even count 15 years if you want to go back before 9-11. And regardless of your political persuasions, uh, what you think officials did or didn't do, what mistakes you think were or weren't made, what your beliefs are about whether or not he should have been killed, 
I hope that we can all agree this morning that Osama bin Laden did a really good job of hiding for a really long time. Now, most of us uh, are not leading terrorist organizations. I say most because we all know Nathan Kiewit is. <laughs> and that, that wasn't a joke. But I bring Osama bin Laden up today because we here in this room and what this psalm is telling us this morning have at least one thing in common with him, and that is that we are really good at hiding. And I would suggest to you that this psalm is telling us that all of us spend some of the time and some of us spend most of the time trying to hide from God, fleeing in one way or another, just like the psalmist from God's presence. We're often just as concealed, just as careful, just as disciplined as him in our attempts not to be discovered, not to be known, and not to face any of the consequences of our actions. And so we have to ask this morning, why would the psalmist want to hide? Why would we want to hide? First of all, I point you to verse 7. The psalmist minces no words. Where shall I flee from your presence? His main goal, his main objective is to get out, to get away from where God is. Why is this so urgent on his mind? Why does he feel this deep need to escape? Look with me at verses 1 through 6. In verses 1 through 6, we see that God has this knowledge that is frightening for the psalmist. It's, uh, if you look, you'll see that it's not, um, because of the fact that he wants to flee, this isn't some kind of boring, sterile information. I have uh, found myself in, in doctor's offices recently for, for wor- reasons not worth going into. But when you go, you fill out these long kind of medical questionnaires. Did your great-great-great-great-grandmother ever have a Band-Aid on her? And... This is not what's frightening the psalmist. I haven't filled out those questionnaires, handed them in, and then fled out of the doctor's office. What causes him to flee is his active, revealing knowledge that shows the truth about him. It's not the image that he's cultivated and carefully edited on his resumes or on Facebook, but in fact, it's something quite different. It's every thought, every word, every desire, every lust of the psalmist is spoken out loud and put clearly in front of him. His greatest failures his most foolish words, and he simply can't stand to face this knowledge. He can't look straight at it. There's no chance for him to pretend. There's no chance for him to be diplomatic. And you can get a sense of this sort of knowledge if you just look at verses 1 through 6. You look at verse 2. You discern my thoughts from afar. God knows what he's thinking even before he shows up. He knows his ways in verse 3. He knows the psalmist's habits. He knows his addictions. He knows his tendencies. He knows his patterns. And in verse 4, he knows every word even before it's spoken. So if you want to have an image in your mind, don't think questionnaire. Don't think boring information. Don't even think kind of your IRS tax, tax filings unless those are illegal somehow. Imagine in this sanctuary right now all your thoughts being said out loud. On the overhead above us, all your kind of failures are printed out in front of us for everyone to, to read. And you get a sense of what the psalmist wants to do. He also, just like you, wants to run away. And as we look at the psalmist, uh, the complete knowledge of God and the psalmist's tendency to run away, the question is, what is God going to do with that knowledge? And that's where we turn to verses 7 through 16. The psalmist is faced with the overwhelming knowledge of God. and Well, first he considers his options for escape. He considers the farthest places he could go. In verse 8, he looks at how far up he can go or how far down he can go. In verse 9, he looks at how far east or west, so the sun is rising in the east, the sea for him is the Mediterranean on the west. And then he looks at the darkness, and none of these options work out for him, but the question uh, for us today is what options do we consider in trying to hide from God? The Old Testament gives us really clear physical pictures. Jonah literally jumps on a ship 
to get away from God. And actually, similar wording is used in Jonah 3 to what's used here for the psalmist. Adam and Eve literally hide in the garden. But my guess is that many of you today, if you want to hide from God, are not going to jump in your car and exit Virginia to try to go to another country. That could be a possibility, but perhaps not. What I would suggest to you today is that to understand our relationship with God and whether we're hiding from him, we have to understand that our relationship with God is directly, intimately, clearly connected with our relationship with others. And so if we're hiding from God, we're hiding from others. If we're dishonest with God, we're dishonest with others. If we're close to God, we're close to others. And the question then is, are we willing to be uh, searched and known? Situations where we can't handle, can't face, can't acknowledge our imperfections, our habits, our patterns that are simply wrong. And in those times when we flee, what's most precious to us is not God's grace or his forgiveness, but our own ability to think of ourselves as good people. And what are the situations in our lives where we avoid being known, being sought out, being revealed? I'll suggest that these are all in front of us every day. Hard conversations. When you sit down with your family and your friends and they can't confront you about your own sin, they can't talk about the ways that you've hurt them, you shut down when a friend or someone in your family raises concerns about your actions or your habits or your character, you kind of have to win every argument. You automatically go on the defensive because you, like the psalmist, and I, like the psalmist, can't face that knowledge. We shut down. Some of you literally don't talk when someone comes up to you to talk about those things. You exit the room. I've seen this. It's, you're hiding. You avoid situations where you have to admit your weakness to yourself, your sin to yourself and others. And here's, I'll dare to be simple and be boring. You avoid prayer. And when you do pray, and when I pray, it's about circumstances or situations outside of us. It's not about the content of our hearts, the things that bother us most about ourselves that we know aren't right, that God needs to come and make new for us. And we also avoid people who know the truth about us. Because if we were to see them, we'd be reminded of those same failures, those same imperfections that we're uh, trying so frantically to run away from. Some of you have actually left friendships, not because uh, someone's done something wrong against you, but you've done something wrong against them, and you can't stand the thought of being reminded of that again and again and again every time you come up against them. And so you do the easy thing, you run. Some of us have even left churches over this. And I point you back to Osama bin Laden. He gives us some really good strategies. Uh, when he was in Afghanistan, he stayed nowhere more than two nights, constantly on the move. Some of us are constantly on the move in our relationships because as soon as it gets to be more than two nights, we have to stiff arm. People know too much about us. We're constantly moving from church to church, from place to place. And we say, oh, I just really like to travel. And perhaps that's true. But for some of us, we deeply, deeply fear uh, the chance to be known that would happen if we stayed in the same place for so long. Osama bin Laden also had a great scheme. So when he was in Pakistan, after he left Afghanistan, he decided to pick perhaps the most uh, unlikely place. He camped outside of a major military base, not very far away, constant activity, constant intelligence gathering. And for us, what perhaps is the most unlikely place to hide is right here in the church. That if we come here every Sunday, we know that we can say to ourselves, I'm okay, it's good. God and I, we have a great relationship. We never talk. I don't really spend any time thinking about the things in my life that need to change. I'm not willing to face it. I'm not willing to address it when other people want to face it. But I'm here. I'm in worship. I'm praising God. We're good. And that's what Osama bin Laden did exactly. And it's even worse for people who stand up in front and preach because they can say, oh, 
God and I are good. I'm up here preaching. What could be wrong in my relationship with God? I can't have failure. Obviously, God has blessed me, and that's the, the deceit that many of us find ourselves in. And finally, when the psalmist considers his options, he's considered up and down, he's considered left and right, he considers the darkness. And some of us, instead of hiding in the church, we hide as far away from it as we can. Um, we live in our addictions, we live as if God's given up on us, that there's no hope. There's no place where he might actually be able to come and speak a word of truth to us. He might be able to change something in our lives. We've given up that there's any hope, any chance. Um, and so I would suggest to you that until uh, we're honest with God, there can't be, we can't have healthy honesty with others. We're either too honest, we share things because we want to get attention, we want people's pity, we want their sympathy, or we don't share anything. We're so protective, so guarded about our images because we couldn't handle someone to think that we're less than perfect. And as the psalmist here is scared, he's ashamed, he's afraid, he's dedicated to running from God. What does God do? And who meets him there? Let's look at what God doesn't do. God doesn't show up with harsh words for the psalmist. Where are you going? What are you doing? He doesn't show up with a set of a checklist that the psalmist has to complete before God's going to take interest in him. But instead, God shows up with an active a thoughtful, and engaged, a committed, pursuing presence. And he doesn't just commit in, in space, he commits in time. So in verses 7 through 12, we see God committing in space. If I ascend to heaven, verse 8, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And here we see that this is not about God's presence, but about his commitment. It's not that just he happens to be in the bottom of the sea, although he is but it's that he's actually actively leading and guiding you even in the midst of that. That your sin doesn't actually get in the way of God's larger story and plan and purposes in your life. And not only that, but not only does he commit in space, but he commits in time. If you look with me at verses 13 through 16, it says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And there's many things we could take away from verses 13 and 16. We could talk about the dignity of human life, talk about God's plan for us. But what's on the front, the front burner, the center stage here, is that God's not confused He's not ambivalent about our lives. He's not confused about when they began. He's not ambivalent about when they began. And he's not waiting for you to reach a certain stage of maturity. He's not setting hoops for you to jump through before he begins to care. His commitment plays out in the planning of your life, and his commitment is so strong that he's willing to begin it before you've even done anything. Before the psalmist was able to run to the east or the west, up or down, God was committed to him. He had a plan for him. And in fact, his running didn't get in the way of that. Psalmist also is just looking at the wonder of his body and seeing that also as a sign of God's commitment and care for him. And what is, uh, and in this uh, talk about God's commitment, what makes this even more startling and shocking and perhaps uncomfortable for us is that it is in no way like our commitment, the commitment we see in the world around us. Part of what makes it even more difficult to come out of hiding is that we live in a world where hiding is good. 
if you come out of hiding, God might commit to you, but someone else might not. And so many of us have either thought, heard, or said to someone, if I had known that about you, then I wouldn't have hired you, wouldn't have talked to you, wouldn't have been friends with you, wouldn't have married you. Now that I know that about you, I'm going to fire you, I'm not going to talk to you, I'm going to leave you, we can't be friends, I'm going to divorce you. And so it's in that culture that we find ourselves, and God's commitment comes in the middle of that and stands as a sharp contrast. God says, I know that about you, and I still commit to you. And so as you think through this passage this morning, think about the the things in your lives that you don't want someone to know for fear that they wouldn't commit to you if they knew it. If you acknowledged it and said it out loud, it would suddenly become real. You would have to face it. Other people would face it. And they might not want to be friends with you anymore. And here God is giving you the confidence to go out and say, no matter what that is in your life, I am still committed to you. And so for us, our application is, one, how we hide from God, how we can come out of hiding, but also our commitment. If God commits to us, we can commit to others. We can stick around in hard and difficult relationships and <clears throat> be willing to stay in for the long term. I read an article in Christianity Today that, that I was riveted by several years ago, and it suggested that in several decades we'll come to a point where lifelong marriage will be a uniquely Christian witness. That is to say, not that people won't be getting married, but that the only people we'll see who have a knowing and staying commitment for their whole lives are people who know that God has known them and stayed with them. And what verses 1 all the way through 16 are telling us is that God doesn't hide from us in the ways that we hide from him. And even when, even when we hide from him. And so there's comfort here. And many of you may be thinking at this point, I thought Psalm 139 was really comforting. I thought it was a good thing that God was present. You know, maybe the psalmist, he really isn't fleeing. He's just kind of thinking about his options. And there's actually been argument about this back and forth. Some people will say, oh, the psalmist really wants to flee. Others, oh, he's just considering his options. And both are true. Both are true for the psalmist and both are true for us. And what happens in the psalms is the psalmist sets out a story and he tells it to us. And here the psalmist is telling us a story of his experience with God. He realized God's knowledge He wanted to flee. He's realized God's commitment. And so now as he tells it to you, he takes that knowledge as comforting. But at some point in his life, he didn't. And the same is true for us. There's times when we run to God and run away from God. And so we can't separate those two ideas in this passage. In fact, you see both of those in verses 1 through 6. God in verse 5 hymns the psalmist in behind and before. It's kind of a military image. He's trapping him. He's surrounding him. It's very threatening. And then in the same verse, he lays his hand upon him. He has this fatherly, gentle image where he's caring for him and sustaining him. And so the psalmist is really telling us the story of the gospel. The story that when Jesus was on the cross, he did everything necessary to bring us peace with God. That he, as the psalmist, as he walks through his life, has came to a place where he realized God's knowledge of him. And after he realized God's commitment to him in the midst of that, he was able to take it as comforting. He was able to move on. And as we come to the comfort of these final verses, some of you may be tempted to think, well, this is good. God knows. He stays. I can walk out of this church now. I keep living my own life. I'm not really sure where I've been. Well, I've been here all these years. But that's not what the psalmist models for us. He doesn't model cheap uh, grace. He doesn't just go on living his life. So after the psalmist has understood God's knowledge of him and then realized God's commitment to him, 
he has some very specific responses. First of all, he just gets up and worships. In verse 17 and 18, he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. And this psalmist is all is with many things. It's true that God's present. It's true that God commits. It's true that God created him in his mother's womb. But he's not, he's, um, not excited about anything more than this, that God knows him and still stays. And that's what the psalmist finds amazing in verses 17 and 18. God hasn't left him, and so he turns to worship. He has a second response, too. He doesn't just worship. He takes sin and holiness very, very seriously. And for us to understand uh, this next part, I really just need to tell you a lot about coffee. When I started teaching about two years ago, I wasn't much of a coffee drinker, and so Every once in a while, there's a, a lady at school who will make Starbucks runs, and I would say, oh, yeah, sure, you know, give me a drink. I don't really know what I'm talking about, so just give me a drink, just give me coffee. And so she would bring me back what I now realize, kind of in my wisdom of later years, was basically Starbucks blonde roast. And I would drink it, and i think, oh, yeah, that's, that's great. That's good. I really enjoy that. And over Christmas break in my first year of teaching, I realized just kind of the foolishness of life without caffeine. And so I went out and I brought a French press and a little grinder so I could grind up my beans and this travel thermos. I had this whole system set up so I could take it to work with me. And I started going to Trader Joe's and buying the boldest, darkest, most intense coffee possible. And I would make it every day and drink it. So this became this normal thing. And everything was good. It was fine until a couple months later when the same woman going on the coffee run, oh, Matthew, would you like me to get a coffee for you? Oh, sure. Get the same thing you always get. And so she brought back this light, blonde Starbucks roast, and I kind of innocently started to drink it, and as soon as it hit my mouth, I just almost spit it out. I had, it was so distasteful. What had been so good for so long, kind of my coffee innocence, I had, I had realized, wow, this is really burned and really light. And I will say, for those of you who at this point are becoming anxious, I have returned to Starbucks. I've kind of, I've made amends. I don't always... I don't get the light roast anymore. I kind of understand the, the folly of that. So that's another sermon. But the point here is that I had, had been drinking the dark, bold coffee for so long and so exclusively that my tastes had fundamentally changed. And the contrast between that bold, extra dark, organic Trader Joe's coffee and the Starbucks light roast was so strong and so pronounced that I couldn't, I couldn't finish that cup. I have to confess right before you all. And that's exactly what's going on here. The psalmist has been drinking God's commitment, God's knowledge now for 17 verses. He's almost in this trance. Perhaps his eyes are closed. And he opens up his eyes and he tastes the world around him and wants to spit it out. That he, for things that were comfortable to him before, now are not comfortable the sin around him and God's holiness are so sharp and distinct in his mind after he's, he's meditated and focused on uh, the ways that God loves him, <clears throat> that he has this sharp, revolting, abrupt, and realistic change. There's almost a turn here in the psalm. We've been talking about souls and people being made in their mother's wombs, God knowing people, and then suddenly he just breaks out in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Where did killing people come in? <laughs> And what's going on is exactly this. He has changed tastes. And you foodies can appreciate this. Our tastes change as we get older. They change as we try new foods. The more you 
feed on something, especially, say, darker coffee, darker beer, the more your mouth will open up to it and you'll understand it. And Matthew 5, 6 talks about this. It talks about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And the psalmist has found himself in a place where he's beginning to hunger and thirst. He's experienced the gospel, and he's found it so sweet. The knowledge that God knows him and commits to him changes the way he sees the rest of the world around him. In fact, if you're thinking about something that you want to pray, new tastes, ask God that he would give you a taste for righteousness, that it would be sweeter and sweeter, that the things that God loves would taste better and better, and the things that he doesn't love would taste worse and worse. And that really is our goal, our our place of sanctification in the Christian life. We're not just struggling really hard to make sure we always don't sin, but we actually want to change that the things that God loves, we love, and the things that he hates, we hate. <clears throat> but the psalmist actually has a challenge here as well. He's faced with the sin and the world around him, and the million-dollar question again is what's he going to do with it? He has several options. He could use this sin to hide from God once again. He could decide not to take the sin seriously. Oh, there are those wicked men out there. You know, that's just kind of how the world is. It's really not that bad. We just need to understand. And if he did that, if he wasn't taking the sin of the world around him seriously, he wouldn't have to take his own sin seriously. It'd be another chance for him to say, well, they're not so bad, so I'm not so bad either. I don't need to have this knowledge. I don't need to be confronted with the ways uh, that I have my own sin. The other thing he could do is he could focus. He could just only look at that sin around him. He could say, look at those wicked, evil people that I loathe and that I hope that the Lord will slay. I am so much better than them. In fact, I don't really need God. His knowledge isn't really that threatening to me. I can use that as another strategy for me just to hide. And he also doesn't use the sin here to earn something from God. He doesn't say, God, look at me. I'm not like those evil people out there. And you know, I'm so righteous, actually, I would really like for you to commit to me. In fact, it's the reverse logic. God knows him, he commits to him, and then the psalmist has the taste for holiness. Then he hates the wickedness. That's the logic of the gospel. It's his behavior that changes after. It's God that commits to him first. So if you're here today and you think that there's a certain place of maturity, of growth that you need to reach before God's going to care, before he's going to come into your life and do something, this psalm is telling you in no uncertain terms, no. It's not what God's waiting for. He's really not waiting for anything. He doesn't need your permission doesn't need your right behavior. He's not waiting for you to get your act together. But when his commitment and his, his knowledge come into your, life, your lives, it does change the way you think about and see the world around you. Now, if you're here uh, today and you're still not sure about Christianity, this might be one place where you say, you know, this is what I really, really hate about Christianity, is that you just go around judging people. You talk about slaying the wicked and how much you loathe them. And the psalmist, in a sense, perhaps even shares your own frustration. And the psalmist is living in the time of the Old Testament, but here he kind of embodies for us something that shows up in 1 Peter 4-7, which says, judgment begins at the household of God. That God shows up first to his own church and his own house and takes their sin very, very seriously. In fact, as, much, as, as seriously as he takes the sin in the rest of the world. And what the psalmist does here is, is really shocking. He goes from talking about slaying the wicked, talks about loathing them, talks about having complete hatred and counting them as enemies. And he turns immediately from that, and he doesn't bewail the state of the culture. He doesn't gossip about the wicked. He doesn't shake his head and say, oh, I just can't believe what the world's coming to. We're going to hell in a handbasket. He does something 
totally radical, totally shocking. He falls to his own knees in repentance and asks the Lord to search him. And I would imagine if you're anything like me, that is not your first response when you see the wicked around you. It's easy to think, that's overwhelming, that's sad, I wish that would change. But I don't typically think, oh, yeah, that's just like me. Those people out murdering, those people out committing those wicked acts. I go to church, things are fine. I preach on Sunday, things are even better. What's the psalmist's secret? The psalmist's secret is that he wasn't comparing his sin to the sin of the wicked. The psalmist's secret is that he's been sitting for 17 verses now worshiping God. And so when he opens up his eyes and he looks at the wicked, he doesn't look at the wicked and then look at himself. He looks at the wicked and looks at God. And then he looks at himself and looks at God. And he sees that both of them fall so far short of God's holiness. And so he can, in the same breath, say, wow, that looks, uh, that looks terrible. And then look at himself and say, wow, that looks terrible as well. And so he, in the end here, he ends with inviting God to come and search him and know him. But we can see at this point that this, uh, the gospel's changed him uh, so radically at this point. He's gone from running from God, unwilling to focus on his sin, to not focusing on his sin, but focusing on God. Instead of hiding and running, he's sitting at, at the feet of God, just worshiping and talking about God's commitment. And it causes him to think about the world and holiness and sin in a whole new way. And in fact, if you look at verse 24 with me, he's not uh, super concerned about holiness for its own sake. He says in verse 24, See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, let me know if there's something in my life, Lord, that makes you really sad. Not interested in moral performance or moral perfection. What I'm interested in is staying here where I've been with you. I've been sitting here for 17 verses. I've realized that you know me, and I realize that you've committed to me. And when I realize that, there's nothing I would want to do now that would grieve you. It would make me sad to make you sad. And so not only is his view of sin changed, it's no longer something uh, threatening necessarily to him, but it is something that grieves the Lord that he now loves. And for us today, the more we understand God's love, the more we uh, hate wickedness. His love contrasts the wickedness, our own and those and others. I, uh, I'm going to call out Amy Aponte a little bit. She's here uh, this morning just to hear me preach, and she has been uh, doing this juicing over the summer, and she's been telling me all about it. And she said, when you go on a juice diet, uh, all the toxins in your body just come out. And it comes out in your mouth. I thought that was so fascinating. As we think about taste, the psalmist tastes the world around him and spits it out. And then he tastes himself. He tastes the toxins in his own life. He tastes the things in his own life that are also destructive, that are poisonous, that will kill him if they don't stop. And he realizes that they're the same. He's also moved into a relationship with God. He's beginning to ask questions. He's gone from hiding to question asking. He's actually telling God, hey, would you come and search me? Would you let me know if there are things in my life that are, are grievous to you? I had a member of my family come to me recently and ask me what the one thing was in their life that I would change if I could. I thought, wow, that takes a lot of confidence to ask someone. And it takes a lot of security to be able to ask that, not only of God, but of someone else. But to be able to ask that question, you have to be resting on something. And this individual and the psalmist here is resting on God's grace for him. So as we're here as a church this morning, this text should shape us. We need to be a community. As we understand God's love, we become more and more vulnerable with each other. We're willing to be uh, searched and known. We care deeply about holy living. 
not because we care deeply about holy living, but because we don't want to make the same God who called us here to worship uh, so, so sad. And if your strategy against sin in your life is based on something other than an understanding of God's commitment to you, then it's going to fail. It's going to crumble. And finally, I just want to ask you, how is the psalmist able to be so honest, and how is God able to commit to him so fully? Perhaps the psalmist didn't understand it completely at the time that it was written, but all of the Old Testament is looking forward to Christ. And so when the psalmist says, search me and know me, he's able to do so with confidence because he knows that when God searches him and finds sin in him, he'll stay. Because when he searched Christ on the cross and found no sin in him, he left. He knows that when Christ tastes our sin, he doesn't loathe us because when God tasted Christ who had no sin, he spit him out. And if you think I'm just making this up, I'm inserting the New Testament into the Old. Look with me at verses 18, the very end. He says, after he's finished worshiping God, he understands God's love and his commitment. Last thing he has to say is, I awake and I'm still with you. And there's a hint here of the resurrection, that when he dies and, and, and wakes up from that experience, he's going to be with God. There's an eternal significance there. And then if you look at verse 24, as soon as he's asked God to search him and see if there's any grievous way in him, he then asks him another question. Will you lead me in the way everlasting? When we read everlasting there, think never-ending, eternal. He's asking God if he'll take him on <clears throat> the path all the way to the end, all the way to spend eternity with him. He's worshipped for 17 or 18 verses, and he doesn't want to stop. He doesn't want to give it up. He looks forward to a future when he'll be able to do that uh, forever. Would you all pray with me? Dear Father in heaven, you know the taste and the color and the flavor of the toxins in our lives. You know the things that will kill us if you don't stop it, if you don't come in the way. And Father, you stay with us and stick with us and commit to us. Father, we don't always believe it. We don't always know it. We ask that you would come again and again, that you would search us and know us, that you would expose us, you'd reveal us, you'd show us who we are, and then we'd show you who you are so that we could, like the psalmist, worship you, that we wouldn't want to grieve you, Father, that we would be sad for the things that, you make, that make you sad. Father, we ask that we would leave today people who are willing to commit in the ways that you've committed to us, to commit to the city, to commit to each other, to commit to this church. We ask all these things in the name of your son. Amen.